Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Before we start today's episode, I have a small piece of housekeeping to take care of. It's regarding the show's release schedule. During the summer months, that is July, August and September, the pace of the episode publication will drop from once every two weeks to once every three weeks. I'm going to need some time off, and I had to choose between leaving a big gaping hole in the release schedule for a month or two, or spreading out the release dates like this, and I think this is a better solution. I hope you agree. Now, with that out of the way, let's get back into the action. In the last few episodes, we've followed the rise of Norway under Håkon Håkonsson and his descendants. During this time, Norway expanded to include Iceland and Greenland, but it also underwent a number of important reforms that allowed the country to punch above its weight on the international stage. Thanks to legal reform and efforts to centralize political, military and economic power in the hands of the king, Norway was in a strong position relative to the country's small population and unimpressive agrarian circumstances. It was even strong enough to threaten Denmark, the kingdom that had oh so recently dominated Scandinavia and interfered in Norwegian domestic affairs. Today, we're returning to Denmark. When we last left Denmark, back in episode 40, V for Valdemar, the leading Scandinavian kingdom had just experienced something of a golden age under Valdemar I and Valdemar II, also known as Valdemar the Great and Valdemar the Victorious, respectively. When Valdemar II died, his son Eric took over as king. He was known as Eric Plaupeni, and as you may remember from last time, he had four daughters, one of which married the king of Sweden and the other the king of Norway. Eric did not, however, live to see his daughter Ingeborg marrying into the Norwegian royal family, since he was murdered in 1250 when he visited his brother Abel, the Duke of Schleswig. The king's head was cut off and his mutilated body was dumped in the water. On the bright side for Abel, this fratricide made him king of Denmark, but on the other hand, it put a definitive end to the Golden Age and reintroduced the Danes to a period of war, unrest and general misery. It eventually became so bad that this part of Danish history is sometimes called the Age of Decay. Episode 46 Chaos and Decay The new king, Abel, was the son of Valdemar the Victorious and his second wife, the beautiful but, according to legend, evil queen Berengaria of Portugal. She already made an appearance in episode 40, V for Valdemar, and already back then I pointed out that the tradition that paints her as evil stems from after her son started to tear the kingdom to pieces, fighting over who would rule it. Because why blame the warring princes when you can blame their mother, right? Anyway. Abel wasn't the oldest son, and therefore not in the direct line of succession, but in 1232, when his half-brother Eric was elevated to co-king and successor to their father, Abel was made Duke of Schleswig. As Duke, he held considerable power and influence, and his position was strengthened further when he married Matilda, the daughter of the Count of Holstein, just south of the border. They were married in 1237, and that same year his new father-in-law withdrew to a monastery, leaving Abel to rule Holstein as well. That way, Abel cultivated many useful German connections, both in Holstein and beyond. 
Up until this point, the title Duke of Schleswig had been granted by the King of Denmark to one of his sons, usually the second one, but Abel managed to keep it within his own family and founded a new dynasty of Dukes of Schleswig. The descendants of Abel would rule Schleswig, that is the southernmost bit of Jutland, for over a hundred years, until 1375. They would frequently find willing allies among their relatives in Holstein. This would soon very soon turn out to be a thorn in the side of the Danish crown, since the various dukes of Schleswig would rule their duchy more or less as if it were an independent region, and they often found themselves in opposition to, or even open rebellion against, the kings of Denmark. Abel himself started this tradition and fought his brother Eric Plaupeni when he became king. Abel and his forces raided deep into Jutland and on the island of Funen, but Eric answered by attacking Schleswig. This war between the two brothers continued until their sister Sophie, who was married to the Margrave of Brandenburg, another German principality that would play an important part in Danish politics in the years to come, managed to make them stop fighting. But just because they no longer fought each other openly, that didn't mean that they were best buddies from now on. At least not Abel, since he had King Eric murdered when he was visiting Schleswig in 1250. Not that Abel admitted that he was behind the regicide, mind you. On the contrary, he and 24 noblemen swore an oath declaring that Abel had nothing to do with the murder of King Eric. This oath was good enough to convince the thing in Viborg to proclaim Abel King of Denmark in November that same year. But the general public was far from convinced. Abel by name, Kain by deed, people would mutter when the issue of Abel's accession was discussed. A year or so into his reign, King Abel was faced with his first serious peasant revolt. The people of Frisia refused to pay their taxes, so the new king raised an army to go collect what he thought they owed him. But things didn't quite pan out the way Abel had planned it. Instead of putting down a revolt and returning home in triumph, he was killed on June 29, 1252 and returned home in a coffin. This sudden and unexpected death obviously caused tongues to wag, and a lot of people saw Abel's death less than two years after the murder of Eric Plaupeni as God's punishment for killing his brother. Rumors started to spread that the monks in Schleswig Cathedral, where Abel's body lay in state, heard all kinds of unholy sounds at night, and so the king had to be buried in a less prominent spot at Gotthorb Castle instead. When he was buried, a wooden stake was driven through his chest to make sure he'd stay in his grave. Nonetheless, stories of how the ghost of King Abel roamed the moors and forests of Schleswig at night persisted for a long time. His widow, Matilda, eventually married Jarl Birger, the de facto ruler of Sweden. You may remember him from episode 42, Swedish Finland, since he led some of the later, and not fictional, Swedish crusading against Finland. Jarl Birger was an important guy in Swedish history, and we'll definitely have a lot more to say about him in a future episode. Since no one expected Abel to die so young, he was only 33 when he fell, his son and heir, Valdemar, wasn't around to pick up his father's fallen mantle. He was in France at the time, but as soon as he heard the news about his father's death, he hurried home to ascend the throne. But Valdemar only got as far as Cologne. There, the archbishop seized him and held him for ransom. He was only released the following year after his mother's relative in Holstein had paid the archbishop what he demanded to let the young prince go free. Valdemar continued home to Denmark as quickly as he could, but when he eventually made it back, he realized that he was too late. His father's throne was no longer vacant. 
It turned out that his uncle, Christopher, Abel's younger brother, had moved quickly and had himself proclaimed king when young Valdemar was so conveniently held up in Cologne. To seal the deal, Christopher had himself crowned king of Denmark on Christmas Day 1252 in Lund Cathedral. Soon after becoming king, Christopher initiated efforts to have his murdered half-brother Eric Plaupeny canonized as a martyred saint, blaming Abel for Eric's martyrdom. Without being too conspiratorial, I think we can assume that Christopher didn't act out of piety, but rather political considerations. You see, if he could convince the Pope that Eric had been a saintly man who had been brutally and unjustly murdered by Abel, this would basically disqualify Abel's sons from claiming the Danish crown in the future, even though they had a better claim to it than Christopher did. To further undermine the power of Abel's family, Christopher tried to abolish the Duchy of Schleswig and incorporate the area into his own personal lands, putting them under his own direct control. But this move failed due to opposition organized by Abel's relations in Holstein, and when Valdemar eventually returned, no thanks to his uncle, Christopher begrudgingly conferred the title Duke of Schleswig on the boy in 1254. Valdemar accepted the title, but he didn't for a moment forgive his uncle. Neither did he forget that Uncle Christopher was wearing the crown that was his by right. Christopher would wind up spending much of his reign fighting domestic enemies, so to stay on his throne he tried to reach peace agreements with his neighbors. In this he was successful, but only because he was willing to give more than he got. He didn't retaliate against Norwegian incursions into Halland, and instead he made peace with both Norway and Sweden. To secure quiet on the southern flank, he gave up a number of castles on the Baltic seashore that had been in Danish hands since the days of his father, Valdemar the Victorious. He handed these strongholds over to his sister Sophie's in-laws in Brandenburg. Domestically though, the situation was far less peaceful. Peasant revolts against his taxes, especially his new property tax, broke out in 1256 and again in 1258. As if that wasn't enough, Christopher also saw the end of the traditional chumminess between the Danish crown and the church. This new conflict with the church was partly due to Christopher's policy of insisting on the king appointing bishops, and partly due to his conflict with Abel's family in Schleswig. That's because the new Archbishop of Lund wasn't only a staunch believer in ecclesiastical autonomy, but he also had family ties with Abel's family. When King Christopher demanded that the church would pay taxes, like any other landowner, the archbishop not only refused, he also instructed peasants who lived on church lands not to serve in the king's army. When the king insisted on getting his taxes, the archbishop went nuclear and excommunicated the king. Obviously, being excommunicated wasn't ideal for Christopher. If he were to die without first reconciling with the church, that would put his immortal soul in danger of eternal damnation, and that was a grave threat to most people in the deeply pious Middle Ages. Even if the king wasn't particularly religious, it was a crack in his legitimacy as king in the eyes of his subjects who, as a rule, took their religion very seriously. But even worse was to come. In a move that not only threatened the king's soul, but also his dynasty's future, the archbishop refused to recognize Christopher's son Eric as his heir, and he even threatened to excommunicate any bishop who would crown Eric king of Denmark if Christopher were to die. 
That was the last straw, as far as Christopher was concerned at least. He ordered the arrest of the archbishop and humiliated him by stripping him of the vestment of his high office and forcing him to wear a so-called fool's cap with a foxtail attached to it. Dressed like that, the archbishop was paraded through the country for everyone to see and laugh at him. And then he was locked up in prison. The archbishop, who was many things but not a fool, had foreseen that something like this might happen, so he had instructed the other bishops in Denmark to declare an interdict against all of the country if the archbishop would be imprisoned. An interdict, for those of you who may not be super familiar with Catholic canon law, means that no clerics would have been allowed to carry out any religious rites in Denmark. No baptisms, no weddings, no funerals, no mass, no forgiveness of sins, nothing. In a society steeped in religion, being under interdict would soon lead to unrest and put pressure on the king to capitulate to the archbishop to save the souls of his people. But none of the Danish bishops followed the archbishop's instructions, and religious life went on as normal. When Christopher had allowed Abel's son Valdemar to become Duke of Schleswig, he had avoided open civil war with his brother's family. But the move had weakened him and his control over Denmark. Under Valdemar, Schleswig was basically autonomous, and when Valdemar died, Christopher once again tried to abolish the duchy and assume direct control over the region. But he once again ran into opposition. Valdemar's widow wanted her son Eric to inherit his father's title, so she instigated a revolt supported by the family's German allies. This revolt shook the throne of King Christopher, and in 1259, as he was fighting his nephew's widow and her German allies, the king suddenly died in Ribe. At the time, Christopher was visiting the bishop there, and the king had just received Holy Communion when he keeled over and died. Those who supported the church in its ongoing conflict with the king thought Christopher's death had been divine punishment for his anti-ecclesiastical policies and his maltreatment of the archbishop, who was still locked up in prison. But among those who supported the king, rumors started to go around that the communion wine had been poisoned and that the king had been murdered by scheming clerics. As a consequence of Christopher's conflict with the church, and especially the archbishop, the king's attempt to have his murdered half-brother Eric Plowpenny canonized failed. But, as I mentioned earlier, his real motive for the campaign to elevate Eric to sainthood wasn't so much his ardent belief in the murdered king's saintly qualities, but rather to block the murderer's sons from claiming the throne. And since Christopher's son did in fact succeed his father, I guess it was a kind of win for Christopher anyway. The son who succeeded him was called Eric, just like his murdered uncle. He was only 10 years old at the time, so his mother, Dowager Queen Margaret, was appointed to lead a regency until young Eric would be old enough to rule by himself. By all accounts, she was competent enough, and she had excellent foreign connections, since she was the daughter of the Duke of Pomerania and had family in Mecklenburg as well. That competence and those connections would come in handy pretty quickly. The task of governing Denmark in the name of King Eric wasn't without its challenges. The Archbishop and the Duke of Schleswig, Eric Abelson, did what they could to undermine Margaret and hopefully get rid of both her and her son. Seeing that the regent and the king were under pressure, the prince of the island of Rügen decided that 
that he could exploit the situation. So he invaded the island of Zealand almost as soon as Eric had accepted the throne. Margaret wasn't going to sit idly by while the country she was appointed to rule was invaded. So she gathered as large an army as she could and sent it out to expel the invaders. It didn't quite succeed. The two forces met at Ringsted, more or less in the middle of Zealand, and there the Danish army was defeated. The invaders were free to continue and they moved on Copenhagen. The city was attacked and taken later that year. The devastation was thorough, and the troops under the Prince of Rügen not only pillaged and carried off as much loot as they could, they also destroyed the castle that Bishop Absalon had built. The invaders seemed unstoppable. They had beaten the Danish defenders, and Margaret hadn't had time to gather a new force to send against them. So the prince decided that he wanted more. He had his army shipped across the Ersen Strait to Scania, a rich and poorly defended region where he intended to continue his tour of pillaging and looting. But even though Margaret was powerless to stop him, she wasn't the only woman in Denmark who didn't approve of this plan. The desperate wife of a Scanian peasant killed the Prince of Rügen when her home was attacked, and when they realized that their leader was dead, killed by a civilian woman no less, the thirst for blood and loot evaporated among the invaders, who packed up and fled back to their island in the South Baltic Sea as quickly as they could. So Denmark was saved, but Margaret realized that both the kingdom and she personally were in an extremely weak position. So to shore up her reign, she tried to mend fences with the Archbishop and the Duke of Schleswig. She released the Archbishop from prison and made sure that Erik Abelson was officially recognized by the crown as Duke of Schleswig. Unfortunately for Margaret, the move didn't have the desired effect. Instead of treating this as the beginning of a new era of peace and reconciliation, the Archbishop and the Duke saw it as a sign of weakness and desperation. Which, to be fair, it basically was. Duke Eric thought this was his moment to rise up and snatch the crown from the boy king Eric and his mother, so he gathered an army and raised the banner of rebellion. Margaret had no choice but to get a new army together and marched out to put the duke in his place. The two forces met in Jutland, and this time Margaret fared better, and she defeated the duke. But her victory wasn't complete, and while the two sides were negotiating a truce, the duke had his allies in Holstein set up a new army that would enable him to renew his rebellion. Margaret caught wind of this deceitful activity and sent her army to stop it. But in the Battle of Lohede, south of the traditional Danewirke border, the combined Schleswig-Holstein forces crushed Margaret's army. Worse, both she and her son, the underaged King Eric, were captured. The king and regent were now both in the rebels' hands. Duke Eric clearly had the upper hand at this point, but he didn't overplay it by demanding the throne for himself. Instead, he let Margaret go in 1262, after she had ceded large tracts of land in southern Jutland belonging to the crown. The underaged king Eric was also released, but he wasn't free to return to Denmark. Instead, he was transferred to Brandenburg, where he had to stay with the ruling family, who, at least nominally, were allied with his mother. King Eric was allowed to return to Denmark when he reached the age where he could rule the kingdom in his own right. Later, in 1273, he married Agnes of Brandenburg, whom he'd gotten to know during his involuntary prolonged stay with his mother's German allies. 
The marriage was agreed to while Eric was still in Brandenburg and it's quite possible that one of the conditions for his release was that he agreed to marry Agnes and that he would do so without receiving a dowry. I'm sure you can imagine that there was no love lost between King Eric on the one hand and the church and the nobility on the other. When he was allowed to rule on his own, he did what he could to strengthen the power of the crown at the expense of the church and the aristocracy. But the only lasting result of that conflict was that Eric was saddled with an unflattering nickname, Clipping. Possibly a reference to a coin that's been cut to indicate that it's lost its full value, and so supposedly hinting at the king's untrustworthiness. The Danish nobles were so worried about King Eric Clipping's attempts to increase his own power at their expense, that in 1282 they made him sign an ascension promissory, which is basically a charter that spelled out in black and white what the limits of the king's powers were, and which rights and privileges the nobility had. It's been heralded as some kind of Danish Magna Carta or Denmark's first constitution, but I think that's taking it a little too far. The Ascension Promissory only bound Eric Klipping, not any future Danish king. In other words, it was a personal attack on Eric, showing just how little support and trust he had among the powerful Danish nobility. King Eric Klipping probably realized that signing the humiliating document was his only chance to keep the peace and avoid civil war. But unfortunately, it seems to have been too little, too late. There were those within the Danish aristocracy who hated the king, both for personal and political reasons, and they wanted him dead. They paid one of the men in the king's retinue to keep them informed of what the king was up to and where he was at all times, hoping to get an opportunity to get rid of the monarch. In November 1286, they got their chance. King Eric was in Viborg in central Jutland and had spent the day hunting in the countryside. Apparently, the hunt had been quite captivating because the members of the royal party were surprised by the early onset of night and couldn't find their way back to the king's residence. Instead, they decided to spend the night in a barn belonging to the church in the village of Finderup. The nobles who were out to get the king were alerted to this arrangement and they dressed up at Franciscan friars and snuck into the barn at night when everyone had fallen asleep. Once inside, they pounced on the king and stabbed and hacked at him. They must have really disliked Eric because according to tradition, the king's bloody corpse was found the next morning with no fewer than 56 stab wounds. The violent murder of King Eric didn't exactly help to stabilize the situation in Denmark. But we're going to take a break from the ever-increasing chaos for now and return to it next time. Before I sign off today though, I'd like to answer a question I recently received from a listener called Mark, who, apropos the Vero stone found in Finland, asked about my take on the Kensington runestone. I don't know if Mark is a fan of the Kensington runestone or not, and I hope I won't disappoint too many Minnesota-based listeners who are convinced that it's genuine, because I'm convinced it's a fake, 100% hands down, and unlike the Vero stones, not a very good one at that. But maybe some of you aren't familiar with the Kensington runestone, so let's take it from the beginning. In late 1898, a Swedish immigrant to the United States called Olaf Oeman was clearing some land he had recently bought to prepare it for plowing. He said he came across a stone, which was about 76 times 41 times 15 centimeters in size and weighed 
around 92 kilos, that was laying face down on a small hill surrounded by wetlands. Ehrman's 10-year-old son, Edward, then supposedly noticed some markings that Ehrman claimed he first thought was some kind of Native American calendar. Since the closest town to Ehrman's farm was Kensington, Minnesota, that's what the runestone came to be known as. The inscription on the stone is supposed to have been made by Scandinavians exploring the region in 1362. The text, written on the face and on the edge of the stone, can be translated as Eight Geats and twenty-two Norwegians on an exploration journey from Vinland to the west. We had camp by two skerries one day's journey north from this stone. We were out to fish one day. After we came home, we found ten men, red of blood and dead. Ave Virgo Maria, save us from evil. We have ten men by the sea to look after our ships. Fourteen days travel from this island. Year 1362. At the time when the runestone was supposedly discovered by the Swedish-born farmer, Leif Eriksson and his travels to Vinland and in North America was widely discussed. As you may remember from episode 12 of The Final Frontier, the hypothesis that Scandinavians had crossed the Atlantic Ocean already in the Viking Age wasn't universally accepted at the time, not least since the definitive archaeological proof had not yet been discovered in eastern Canada. But in Scandinavia, it was generally believed that Leif Eriksson had indeed made it to America, and the Scandinavians, who had recently rediscovered their Viking heritage during this era of national romanticism, were very proud of Leif Eriksson's achievements, and a little miffed that not everybody shared their enthusiasm. Basically, they were eager to find incontrovertible proof to rub in the face of the Spaniards that their national hero Columbus had arrived 500 years too late to claim the title of first European in the New World. But even though a lot of Scandinavians and Americans of Scandinavian descent were quick to embrace the Kensington runestone, not everyone was convinced. Not even all Scandinavians believed the stone was real. Among Norwegians, there was some suspicion that the stone was fake since it mentioned a joint Swedish-Norwegian expedition. In 1898, when Olaf Ehrman found the stone, Norway was in an unhappy union with Sweden, and tension was mounting with increasing demands for Norwegian independence. In that context, some Norwegians were both offended and suspicious of the mention of a joint expedition, which they felt was just a little too convenient. And the Norwegians weren't the only ones to be skeptical. In fact, already in 1910, a professor of Scandinavian languages and literature at the University of Minnesota published an article where he declared that the Kensington runestone was a forgery. When he sent copies of the inscription on the stone to linguists and historians in Scandinavia, they unanimously agreed with him. Ever since then, the consensus in the scholarly community has been that the stone is a 19th century forgery, and not a very good one. The evidence that the runestone is a fake is legion, but here's a brief list of some of the most obvious issues. 1. Even though it's notoriously difficult to date stone carvings, the chisel marks in the Kensington runestones are sharp. If they had been made over 600 years ago, the text would be much more difficult to read. Just take a look at a gravestone from just a few hundred years ago for comparison. 2. The runes on the stone are anachronistic. At least seven of them, the A, D, J, V, A and E, have modern shapes not attested in any carvings from the Middle Ages. 3. 
the language of the inscription is very close to modern Swedish. I mean, I, as a native Swedish speaker, have no problems understanding all of it, whereas I struggle to get more than the gist of a text actually written in the 14th century. And here we get to four. One of the aspects of medieval Swedish that makes it difficult to understand for a non-specialist contemporary speaker of Swedish is that 14th century Swedish was a highly inflected language with four cases as well as different verb endings in singular and plural. None of this is reflected in the Kensington runestone, giving it a distinctly modern feel. For instance, we were is rendered as vi var instead of the expected vi varum. We came as vi kom instead of vi komum, and we had as vi hade instead of vi haftum. 5. The word for exploration journey used on the Kensington runestone is optagelsefart reflecting modern Norwegian optagelseferd. Sorry, Norwegian speakers. Anyway, optage is borrowed from the Low German uptagen or Dutch optagen, which in turn is borrowed from High German aufdecken. That High German word is in itself a translation from the French découvrir, meaning to discover, and the first time it appears in German is in the 16th century. So it's highly unlikely that some random 14th century Geats and Norwegians would have chosen and translated a French word not to be used by any other Scandinavians for another 200 years. It's also worth noting that the Norwegian 19th century historian Gustav Storm often used the word Optagelsefärd in his popular articles about the Vikings, widely spread and read at the same time as the Kensington runestone was most likely carved. These are just five clear indications that the stone can't be authentic. But despite the academic dismissal of the Kensington runestone as a fake, a Norwegian-American author and hobby historian called Jalmar Hörland was convinced that it was the real deal, and worked to convince the world that the Scandinavian explorers had in fact reached deep into Minnesota in the middle of the 14th century. Herland even brought the stone to Europe, hoping that Scandinavian scholars would be convinced of its authenticity if they just could see it up close. It didn't work. Swedish linguists who examined the stone once again declared it to be a fake. But Herland didn't give up. He spent the next 40 years writing books and articles arguing that the Kensington runestone was genuine. But even though he only had very limited success, the claim that the stone is real pops up every now and then. The last time it happened was in the 1980s and 1990s. And there is still a small group of people convinced that the Kensington runestone is authentic. If you want to check out the stone for yourselves, I believe you can do so at the Runestone Museum in Alexandria, Minnesota. So that's my take, Mark. I hope you found it compelling, and even if you didn't, thanks for sending in your question. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history, like the Runestone Museum in Alexandria, Minnesota, for instance. Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to motivate me go on producing the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. 
I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop, or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.